Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're joined by Dylan Palman, a research fellow at the Acton Institute, where he serves as managing editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality. Uh, Dylan, just as a as an introduction, tell us a little bit about your work at the Acton Institute and uh, and the journal. Great, yeah, I'm actually uh, executive editor now, but that's that's a recent update, so it might not have come through in my bio. Um, the journal is a peer-reviewed academic journal published twice a year. Um, we shoot for spring and fall, but we don't officially call them spring and fall issues anymore to give a little more publishing flexibility. Um, and it's trying to publish top-level academic research on the morality of the marketplace and the intersection between uh, faith and free markets, um, ethics and liberty, um, and also you know political science and philosophy as well. So it, it's intentionally an interdisciplinary uh, journal. And uh, that's a large por- portion of the work that I do here at Acton is simply editing and, and organizing and managing the journal. Uh, but the other side is that I'm a research uh, fellow, and that means that I write my own papers and present them, publish them. I also lecture, and I, I write you know blog posts and essays as well. So kind of dipping my hands into both worlds of being both an author or you know content creator in that sense uh, and an editor. I don't think we've ever had anyone from Acton on before, so maybe you could just talk a little bit about what the Acton Institute itself is. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Acton Institute uh, was founded, I believe, 30 years ago now, um, and it's founded for that purpose, but more broadly so, so not specifically uh, or limited to academic outreach, but trying to connect people or show people the connections, teach them, explore the connections between um, you know, their... Christian or other, you know, religious values. Uh, we do reach out to um, people of other faiths occasionally, but usually uh, they're Christian values and faith and theology um, on the one hand, and the world of economics, uh, the business world uh, on the other. And, you know, that can be a matter of um, you have a lot of preachers and moralists who maybe have great concern for caring for the poor, but they don't really understand much about how economies work, and that can lead them to making certain prescriptions or statements that are very unhelpful and, in fact, very alienating of specifically the people often in the best position to help the poor, which is uh, business people or the wealthy. And uh, on the other hand, you have people who maybe do a great job uh, you know, in their lives in terms of uh, worldly success, uh, but seeing the connection between Sunday and the other six days of the week uh, can be a challenge. So uh, our little tagline is that we, we try to unite good intentions and sound economics. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the show. The, 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 I guess you could say the working title, the topic that I kind of wanted to get into today uh, was I've been calling this episode the, uh, the missed moral revival. And uh, believe it or not, it was actually my idea rather than Josiah's, although this is sort of right in his wheelhouse. He's usually the show's uh, stubborn pessimist, and I kind of think that maybe we're like a, 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 an old married couple that's starting to look alike, because I'm usually the, the stunning optimist. Um, but as I look back and reflect on 
you know, a little over a year that we've had of, of this pandemic, the isolation, it just seems like compared to other tragedies, other struggles, there hasn't been really the same type of ostentatious show of resilience and solidarity. And, you know, whether it's, you know, you think of any number of local tragedies, floods, shootings, natural disasters, there's, you know, whatever your town is strong, there's a hashtag, there's a t-shirt for it. And I haven't seen, at least not recently, I haven't seen sort of that same uh, ostentatious display of resilience, solidarity. And, and I guess on a flip side, which I think is still related, is I haven't really seen what I perceived as a moral revival, a religious revival. And I just kind of wanted to, I guess, maybe as we, and maybe this is the most optimistic tone that we're going to set in the whole show, is it seems like we're now sort of headed towards economic revival and society opening up a bit. But my perception of it is, is we've really kind of missed an opportunity to really um, to build stronger families, to work through private institutions, to care for those in need. And we've all been in need, right? We've all struggled emotionally. And I guess my question for you, just as an opener is, am I wrong about this? Is my perception wrong that there's been sort of this missed opportunity? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I'll start with uh, just some, maybe some hopeful notes. Um, I agree that there's maybe not a clear, you know, mass nationwide religious revival, although I even have some doubts about that. Um, but we certainly have seen in terms of, um, you know, you talk about the reaction of local communities to things like uh, natural disasters. Uh, well, we, we did see churches um, continuing their ministries of mercy, um, offering financial assistance for people who lost their jobs, um, in some cases donating N95 masks to hospitals, um, and offering their, their parking lots and buildings as COVID-19 testing sites. So there's there has been some um, action at church buildings in particular um, and in church institutions uh, trying to alleviate uh, some of the pandemic. On the other hand, um, and there's this has been uh, kind of a continual back and forth, and of course all the worst cases end up in the news, but there's been some resistance to some of the COVID restrictions, uh, particularly on uh, worship uh, and you know, capacity and whether or not people could meet indoors and all this sort of stuff. And uh, that's resulted in some some mixed rulings from the Supreme Court, uh, which I'm not being a, a lawyer, I'm not very competent to comment on. But, you know, in some cases, people said, hey, it's freedom of religion, we should all be able to show up and not wear masks and be at full capacity. And those ones generally uh, were not um, d successful. Uh, whereas others said, well, you know, we have capacity requirements for business. Uh, and yet, uh, churches aren't even to, allowed to be open meeting those requirements. Uh, so there was an unequal treatment, and those ones tend to be successful. Um, so there, there's been some things that have uh, actually restricted our ability uh, to come together religiously. Um, and at the same time, we have this rapid shift to online services and liturgies, depending on the tradition. Um, we also have, in terms of family, because um, you mentioned that as well, uh, I think a lot of people realized um, unexpectedly, perhaps, that their relationships depended on being away from each other for about 40 hours a week and uh, throw them together in the same house. And there was a lot of divorce. There were a lot of people who postponed marriages, who were engaged, a lot of engagements broken off. Um, I, I'm still actually really curious to see statistics about marriage and divorce from last year, and I haven't dug into that myself. Um, 
And there's been concerns over older members of the family. Well, we can't, you know, we, people not wanting to interact with them or be in contact with them. Uh, so there's been aspects of the pandemic itself which have made, I think, that kind of revival or solidarity more difficult just due to the nature of uh, the event itself. Um, but as far as uh, has there been or is there a religious revival, I think maybe instead of trying to answer that, because I, I, I will end up rambling if I do, I'll just ask you, well, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, you know, what is a relig- religious revival? You know, if we asked, um, you know, a, a Pentecostal Christian, they might say, well, we have a religious revival every Sunday morning, right? Uh, so w- what do you have in mind uh, when you ask that question? Yeah, and so I think that's, I think that it's fair to, to turn the tables on. Um, but I, I do think that there's maybe, there's two different things that I have in mind, and I think that they're, I think they are related, but they're not synonymous. One is kind of, I keep using the term sort of ostentatious display, um, where I didn't feel like there was as much of that, you know, that uh, that coming together and it's as, as, you know, as silly as it may seem talking about the hashtags, the t-shirts and all that, that it, it actually, it's the way we express ourselves in modern times. I didn't feel like there's as much of that solidarity coming through this period as we would have seen in with other sort of more local tragedies or even something national like 9-11. And then separately, and I do think it's related, is is very much a sort of religious observance um, uh, type of revival, whether it's people becoming more active at their church or it's more of a uh, personal uh, spiritual journey where they're, you know, they're relying on their faith or prayer uh, trying to get through a difficult time. And of course, that part is, that's obviously going to be very hard to, uh, you know, that's not going to show up in headlines. Uh, you know, uh, I guess you can ask people or, you know, poll people, are you spending more time in prayer? But that's not something that's likely to be um, showing up in headlines or a, a hashtag or, you know, uh, maybe a t-shirt sales that we're all, you know, we're all adopting the same prayer and that we're all going to popularize it. So that part's difficult, but I haven't seen, to me, I haven't particularly seen the evidence of that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. Um, I've, I've thought about this a bit because I, I didn't, I wanted to figure out what's my own answer to that question. What is a revival? Religious, moral, um, usually they're they go together um, in American history. So I went all the way back. I looked at uh, First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, just kind of marching through. I, I had studied these things uh, in graduate school, but just, you know, marched through Wikipedia basically to refresh my memory. And there's some interesting commonalities. Uh, if we just think of these as social phenomenon, we maybe take a moment uh, to set aside our judgment of whether any particular one was good or bad. Um and so I came up with a list of, you know, six to eight characteristics. Um, and and it's when broken down in this way, I think it raises some really interesting questions about some very contemporary things in terms of uh, social movements during the pandemic last year. So uh, one is charismatic leadership. So you have George Whitfield in the first Great Awakening. You have fire and brimstone preaching in the second. You have Dwight Moody in the third. You have William J. Seymour and the Azusa Street Revival, and then you get people like Fulton Sheen and Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. in the 20th century. Uh, we can go on and on and on uh, about that sort of thing. Usually there's not necessarily that it's a cult of personality, but there's at least people who know how to draw a crowd are usually there. Um, there's an ecumenical reach 
um, to all of these uh, historically. Um, uh, sometimes just inter- intra-Protestant, sometimes, you know, even including Roman Catholics. Um, there's uh, a large following with a, a generational impact. You mentioned 9-11, uh, and I remember people wondering at the time, I was I was in high school. In fact, I was a senior. I was turning 18 the next May. Um, so it's a very generational defining moment for me. Um, I remember people wondering, well, is this going to lead to this generation's religious revival? And I think uh, while there was an uptick in religious attendance for maybe a year and a half, uh, the answer to that is no. Um, there wasn't this long-lasting, you know, resurgence of religion. Uh, religious adherence. In fact, what we have instead in the last 20 years is this narrative of the rise of the nuns. Uh, Nun, not N-U-N-S, that would be a different rise, which would be very fascinating, but uh, N-O-N-E-S, referring to people who on uh, demographic surveys, when asked uh, what their religious affiliation is, they don't click, you know, any form of Christianity or Judaism or Islam or anything like that. They also don't even click uh, your check uh, atheist or agnostic. They just check none of the above. They're the kind of spiritual, but not religious sorts of people. So there's there's that's an aspect that seems to to you know you look at most of the Great Awakenings and other revivals. These are generational long um, occurrences. Um, there's usually social reform connected with these. Uh, the first Great Awakening was. Uh, it marked a large number of um, people of African descent, um, in many cases slaves, uh, embracing Christianity for the first time. Um, Second Great Awakening uh, went right along with the abolition movement, women's suffrage, um, temperance societies, which eventually led to prohibition. Uh, Third Great Awakening, we have um, some of those causes continuing. We have like the YMCA. Um, Azusa Street, again, is very much... uh, economically diverse, but including the poor. It's uh, multiracial in a way that, like, there's L.A. Times articles at the time uh, which specifically criticized the multiracial nature of what was going on there. Um, that's true of, of uh, Billy Graham as well and, of course, Martin Luther King. Um, so there's that side of it, kind of including the socially marginalized, we could add to that. Um, there's, there's a component often of, uh, I don't know, of a charitable term, but enthusiasm, um, you know, there's claims of signs and wonders in some cases. Other people simply um, fainting in the midst of a worship service. Um, and there's all kinds of interpretations of what people may think that is. Um, and then very often these spawn new religious movements or initiatives. So Second Great Awakening marked the founding of many black denominations and churches. Um, Third Great Awakening, you know, you're getting things like, I think, I could be wrong by the timeline, but like Mormonism <laughs> comes during this time, right? Azusa Street, of course, the Pentecostal movement and many, many Pentecostal churches. So we can go on and on about that sort of thing. Um, and then lastly, although this isn't always the case, there seems to be some kind of national trial. And that gets us back to, to COVID, you know, whether it's civil war and reconstruction or uh, the world wars or anti-communism or Vietnam. Uh, we could talk about the Jesus movement as well as one of these sorts of revivals. Um, so if we look at those sorts of components, I don't know that I don't know what to say because I can think of at least one very charismatic figure in the last four or so years who had a very religious following, and that would be former President Donald Trump. Um, so, he, so by that, so by that token, then the the new religion that's springing forth would be QAnon. Maybe, maybe QAnon, or maybe there's a sort of co-opting of what would have been religious revival by 
partisan activism or you know political activism. So you could you could ask about yeah QAnon and the Capitol riot was some people had crosses there right it wasn't just American flags and and other you know sorts of things. Um, you could ask also the same question though about uh, the Black Lives Matter matter movement um, and of course I'm sure your listeners have plenty of. Uh, differing opinions about that, um, but it, it has some of these characteristics uh, as well, um, and certainly clergy um, in many cases were involved. Although I don't think there's maybe as clear of uh, charismatic leadership um, at the center of it. Um, so that leads me to, to to again not exactly know how to answer. Um, do we characterize uh, these recent political and social? activist movements, um, in some cases, somewhat fringe movements, as their own kind of revival. Yeah, that's a, that's a sort of a bleak perspective, I think. Yeah, as you were going through the, you know, the different characteristics or whatever, uh, the like, uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, woke, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. movement. Seem to check a, a a lot of those boxes, even though it's not an explicitly religious movement. Uh, certainly, I don't I don't know as much about QAnon. I don't think they I don't think they're as involved in like social reform. I guess see <laughs> like voter security. I don't know, but uh, right. Uh, I mean, it would depend on what you qualify as social reform. I think, but um, I guess they they are they are big on uh, uh, stopping. Uh, child tra- sex trafficking or, or whatnot, for what my understanding. So yeah, uh, certainly yeah. a noble cause. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, maybe that's you know, I mean, maybe maybe that's part of the answer is that um, uh, you know, energy that in prior eras would have gone into some Christian movement, you know, Christian identified movement or other thing. Uh, now go into these like uh, quasi political social, uh, you know, with a tinge perhaps perhaps of religion uh, movements. Yeah, and I mean, is it, the my my nagging curiosity is has it ever been any different? Um, so there's always been detractors. Um, you know, when George Whitfield was out preaching, you have someone like Jonathan Edwards, who people think of as this like fire and brimstone preacher when they read his sermons, but he was actually part of kind of the old school way of preaching where he would just get up there and read his sermon in a kind of quiet monotone. In fact, he asked people to like quiet down in the midst of, of his, his sermons, right? He was not trying to work people into a fervor in any way. And he was in fact critical of, of a lot of that sort of thing. Um, and there's, I think maybe there's a question when we, uh, a question of, how much is the phenomenon? How much is the narrative that we've received it? Um, so if you come from a tradition where you say, oh, you know, the Great Awakenings were a good thing, well, you're likely to presume that you would have been a part of it and approving of it. Um, but there were always people criti- critical of every single social movement connected to these, of a lot of the different expressions, uh, religious and otherwise, that, that came along with them and a lot of the leadership. Perhaps you would have been one of them. Yeah, I think that where my head is, and it's a little bit difficult to express perhaps, um, is you know, we, we've been talking about things as sort of almost religious, you know, social aspects that take on almost the role of a religious movement, religious fervor, and things of that nature. 
And I think that Josiah is right that a lot of the energy that in the past might have gone into um, a religious institution or religious movement has gone into more political movements. But also, so that's one aspect of it. But I think that the thing that I'm sort of troubled by is, for lack of a better word, more ministerial, more mm. ministry, more caretaking, I guess is probably the, uh, an even better word. And some of that caretaking would be explicitly through religious institutions, yeah. religious believers as they do this in their community, but also just that community, civic-mindedness, caretaking, looking after each other. And I think, I mean, obviously, it's it's pretty clear that while we are physically distancing, it's really hard. It's so much harder to do this, right? Right. But I feel right. like that's the part that that part of it was the expression of it. Like, hey, let's let's just all express that we're all trying to come together, even though while we're distanced. But I'm I'm, I'm actually, I guess, the thing that I'm sort of troubled by is was was it was there really this lack of personal caretaking that I think really was happening because you hear so much about the emotional toll, the psychological toll that was happening yeah. with people. How did we do as a society, as, as institutions, as churches, but individually, how did we do with not just taking care of ourselves and drawing on our own resilience, but also caretaking towards others? Yeah. And I think that that's a question we're going to need to keep asking for a long time. I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I want to be generous because I know pastors and priests that I think have done a great job, right? I know churches that have done a great job, but I also see people on the on the margins and not really being included, or maybe you know maybe some of that's self imposed, maybe that's a matter of the regulations, but um, but I think I think there's a temptation, especially now um, in Michigan. I think it's July first; everything is opening up again. Um, everything basically is kind of open right now, but it's, you know, there's no, there's going to be supposedly no restrictions, uh, even if for unvaccinated people, um, which is kind of amazing given how strict Michigan was through the whole pandemic in terms of our governor's executive orders and that sort of thing. And I think there's a temptation for people to think, well, it's over. Like we did it. Let's go back to normal. Um, but we, we lost more than half a million people in 2020 alone, um, maybe not directly, but at least related to this pandemic. Um, and there's all kinds of things about our ways of life that, that may not change. I mean, the fact that you and I are far more comfortable using Zoom is, is pretty minor. Um, but that, that factors into these sorts of things that people are coming out of this. And even if we restore what we consider maybe ordinary commerce, and I certainly hope we do, because economics matters and not just for you know, stock prices, but for, you know, family budgets and church budgets and, you know, all these ministries of mercy that we're talking about and we care about. Um, but there's there's just a collective trauma, I think, that a lot of us, if not all of us, have undergone. And, you know, there's people that when required to socially isolate, probably were already on the fringes anyway of, self-isolation to the point where I, I wonder, like, how many more recluses do we have as a result of this? People who just were kind of forced to make it work. And now they're like, no, I don't see any reason to go back, right? Um, how many people are we just going to not even see anymore? Um, or, you know, or even just in a general sense, uh, you know, the very opposite of religious revival. People got used to not going to church. Is it going to be hard to get them to come back? 
Um, it seems to be in some cases, although I, I've been, again, encouraged by my own parish in some ways. But uh, even there, I don't think we're at the same same uh, attendance levels that we we were at, you know, two years ago. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I think this is this is something that I would hope uh, pastors, especially, but also you know, Christian ministries and you know other other social work groups, that sort of thing. I hope it's not something that we forget about. That I hope we don't we don't take all the good news as much as I I'm very happy for the good news, and I think we should be. Uh, I hope we don't we don't let the good news blind us to these continuing needs because I think you're absolutely right that. Uh, there's there's just uh, a sort of rallying and community that we might have expected, and it didn't quite happen for a, a variety of reasons. And now I think we're we're at the point of a lot of people just sort of moving on, and I don't think it's the same world anymore, and not the same country, and um, and not in any big you know political ways, but just, you know, it's psychological. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't always think it's bad. Um, every change means that something old has passed away and something new is coming about. Um, so maybe there'll be some really good changes that come about from this. Um, but there's bound to be a lot of very negative things. And I would hope Christians especially uh, would feel duty uh, not to be among those uh, who give in to that temptation to just say, okay, you know, uh, time for, you know, the summer of party, <laughs> right? Time to time to live it up um, and and not remember the question of, well, what about my neighbor? Or what about distant family that, that I otherwise, you know, might not have contacted, but maybe they don't have anybody else, you know? So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if, if you have any additional thoughts on that. Well, I, I mean, I, sort of on a related point, I, I one of the concerns I have about Protestant, particularly evangelical churches, is I think the future belongs to Joel Osteen. Uh, we, um, you know, among evangelicals, the transition to digital church is a lot easier uh, mm-hmm. than uh, in the Catholic tradition. And so uh, we don't have to have sacraments in a physical building by a priest. And so if you start down that path, the church is basically that webinar that you do every Sunday. Um, it doesn't have the central place in your life. And suddenly, if you're viewing church as a webinar, mm-hmm. um, a, a TV show that you watch every week, then that whole aspect of community caregiving um, and really providing for your neighbors, looking out for your neighbors, that's so much more difficult. And I think that that's, that's what I really fear for evangelical churches going forward is that what they would normally be doing is ministry is going to, it's going to take so much more buy-in. I don't think Catholic churches are going to have nearly as much difficulty with that. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a, a really good point to consider, and I'm I'm actually a Greek Orthodox myself, so we have kind of a similar situation around Roman Catholics. That basically, as soon as I could go back, you know, I wore a mask and we distanced in the pews and whatever. But I wanted to be there. I wanted the Eucharist, right? Um, and, wait, wait, wait. You, said you're, you said you're Greek Orthodox, but yes. then you were talking about pews. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's uh, so. It depends on on your parish. Uh, some of us don't have pews, but uh, I go to a Greek parish and. Uh, some of us Eastern Orthodox, I should say. And um, 
in many cases they're you know not not the icons and whatnot, but in some cases they've adopted some of those those sorts of things like pews or chairs. Um, in in our in our parish, I wish we had fewer pews. I don't think no pews, <laughs> but fewer would be nice just to give the kids a place to run around and play. Um, I have four kids, so it'd be it'd be nice if we had a bit more of a kid friendly um, environment within the the nave. So I went back, and I wanted to go back, and and certainly others did as well. Um, so I don't know. I don't want to get too theologically critical, though. I grew up evangelical, and I don't have any, you know, hard feelings about that. Um, I'm very thankful, in fact, for my upbringing. Um, I don't know. How do you overcome that obstacle if you don't have that tangible, this is what you can get here in no other place thing, right? Um, if if church now is just, uh, you know, it may as well be, uh, well, you know, a Billy Graham crusade uh, broadcast every Sunday morning. Um, does church membership have any meaning anymore? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's going to be a a real challenge going forward for evangelical churches. I think particularly the smaller mid mid size, which you might think of as marginal, that are sort of doing well to sort of cover their their fees. I think they're going to be the ones that uh, are going to struggle. Where the mega churches that can have a blend of in person. And um, and then and then do digital. I think those are the ones that are going to do well in the future. So I, I do think that we are. You know, I think we're getting a little bit closer to economic recovery. Does do you think that that is going to solve a lot of these woes, or have we? Uh, you know, should we think about our social capital and our you know our emotional and psychological resilience as? you know, resources that get depleted, do we have to, you know, will we'll suddenly having an open economy and an economic boom in the third and fourth quarter, is that going to solve these problems or are these sort of two different things? Uh, I think I'm inclined to say they're two different things. Not that there's never any relation, but, um, you know, there, there are countries in the world with, you know, incredibly free and prosperous economies that are, exceedingly secular somewhere like new zealand for example right um there's there's not a necessary connection between these things at all uh, I, i'd say one heartening thing i guess it was it was kind of a, a bland uh, result but there was i, I uh, mentioned to this in email yesterday but there's a, a pew survey uh they published it in january but it was from the summer last year and they mentioned how americans um unlike people from other developed nations uh that they surveyed um about uh, 28% of Americans reported stronger personal faith because of the pandemic. Um, however, majorities are pluralities in all countries, so they do not feel that their strength, their faith has been strengthened at all. And then they, they kind of commented that, well, you know, people who already felt very religious are more prone to say that their faith was strengthened. Um, so what we see there is simply probably more of a, a reflection of the fact that Americans just tend to be more religious. Um, historically, that's the case. I think that explains a little bit of the the rise of the nuns that I mentioned earlier, that um, Americans, even if they aren't happy with what's on offer, they're not happy with nothing either. Um, so maybe that's actually a note of encouragement that, okay, yeah, the economy gets going again. And Americans are also um, uh, uniquely generous in terms of, you know, uh, about a decade ago, the tsunamis, um, earthquakes, that sort of thing. It's all, you know, Americans give and give and give and give. Um, 
hopefully, maybe they'll start saying, hey, shouldn't we be giving to a church? And if you're giving to a church, maybe you should actually start showing up to that church. Um, so that'll be a question um, for me, at least, uh, going forward to see, you know, do, does attendance require, recover? And what is what is church membership and church community look like? I think we, I hope we can all agree that uh, as much as I enjoy, you know, conversations like this that are one-on-one, uh, Zoom is really bad at community cultivating. Um, it's, it's maybe a, an interesting video phone sort of substitute, but um, I, I had a book club all last year. In fact, I've had it for years now, but we continued it over Zoom, uh, and we immediately noticed that uh, doing a book club over Zoom means that only one person gets to talk at a time, and you can't, you can't turn to the person sitting next to you and have your own side conversation, or you can't, you know, even if you try to, like, interrupt and interject, well, now everybody's listening, and, you know, it, it just disrupts the whole flow. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't cultivate that same kind of group community exchange um, of, of values and ideas that you get with in-person, uh, you know, social relations. So maybe people know that. I mean, I think a lot of people are tired of every, you know, having three Zoom meetings a week or whatever at their work. Uh, and they're happy to go back into to the work, the office buildings and whatnot. Maybe we'll see that with churches too. But at the same time, I think we'll see a lot of businesses that say we maybe we never need an office in the first place. We might even see some churches saying, why do we need a building? Um, we might see things go intentionally in the other direction. People saying, you know, we, you know the mega church thing, they do multi-sites. They, they put up a screen where they got the same pastor, you know, talking to everybody. Why did they all need to get up in the morning and come to a building in the first place? They could have just you know, booted up the computer and turned on the internet and got it all on YouTube and, you know, made themselves a cup of coffee and a bowl of cereal at the same time. Uh, so I, you know, I, I was just curious, um, thinking about some of the more economic aspects. I don't know if you we were talking more about the like more religious stuff, but, uh, if you wanted to talk about some of the economic aspects. Sure. Uh, go for it. Yeah. So I was particularly thinking of two things, related to uh, the vaccines. One, of course, being, you know, there's a lot of talk about various, you know, offering various uh, incentives to encourage people to get the vaccines. I think in Ohio, they're doing lottery tickets. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not 100% uh, sure that this wasn't a parody. I checked it wasn't the Babylon Bee, but I think in Seattle, they were giving people marijuana if they were getting back. There's <laughs> a broad, you know, range of that stuff. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, just, uh, uh, thoughts on that. Uh, and the, yeah, yeah. So this is, you know, if you had, I don't know if you had any, uh, particular thoughts on, on, on that sort of thing, uh, and how that ties in. Cause you know, this is a, this is a thing I think, um, you see in some other contexts, whether it's uh, blood donation or, or organ donation or whatever is, uh, uh, you know, a hesitancy to use these sorts of uh, economic incentives to encourage, you know, pro-social, moral-type uh, behavior. Right. Uh, certainly with, with organ donation, we specifically don't want, you know, poor people being tempted to sell a kidney just to get a meal, right? Um, if somebody's homeless or whatever, or if, you know, worse, if they're looking, a drug addict looking for a hit or something like that. So I understand that. Um, but as far as economic incentives go, they probably will shape 
behavior to some degree. Maybe there'll be some people on the fence that say, oh, you know, why not? I'll play the Ohio Lottery or I'll, you know, get get an extra joint or two <laughs> at state expense, I guess, uh, in Seattle. Um, but in my experience, purely anecdotally, uh, I think the reasons people have gotten or not gotten the vaccine are really hard to pin down. You know, for some people, maybe they were doing a ton of research and they decide, no, this is this is what I need to do. Um, some people have actual medical reasons not to get a vaccine. Um, my wife has autoimmune, uh, autoimmune concerns. Actual doctors have told her not to get it, for example. Um, there are some people that they're maybe part of uh, certain religious communities or maybe even just certain, again, online discussion groups uh, where people are skeptical for all sorts of reasons. And that makes me a little skeptical of the effectiveness of an economic incentive. In as much as if, if my concern is I don't want Bill Gates implanting a microchip uh that's the mark of the beast into my arm. I'm not going to say, oh, but I do it for a chance to win $10,000, right? Like the the motivations there are pretty overpowering, any any sort of economic incentive. So it, I think it'll, it'll be effective in the narrow cases where somebody was maybe just too lazy to get around to doing it, and then that's enough to get them, get them to do it. Uh, but in a lot of cases, I think people are going to come to the decision based on very personal reasons, perhaps, you know, very, not not to disparage them at all, but very emotional reasons. People have to feel like, no, I, this is this is right for me. Um, and that's not necessarily a matter of, uh, you know, offering the right carrot or stick uh, in terms of policy. And it's not often a matter of having the right argument or the right data. Um, it can it can be any number of, of things that are going to either get someone to change their mind or keep someone uh, from coming to get vaccinated. I mean, here in uh, in Michigan, uh, at our, our our Meyer Superstores, our grocery stores, and actually I think it's true at Walmart's too, um, they're just doing walk-up vaccination now. I mean, you had to schedule an appointment when I got one, uh, when I got my vaccine, but now it's just, you know, you're, you're doing your shopping. Hey, why don't you stop by the pharmacy? You can get vaccinated. So the accessibility is really easy. It's, you know, a lot of times people are already up and around doing something and it's being offered to them. I don't know that saying, you know, oh, also you get a chance to win $10,000. It's really going to be that big of a motivator at that point. All right. Yeah. I've been vaccinated a bunch of times, you know, so. <laughs> right. The, so the other, the other, uh, you know, semi-related question I had had to do with, uh, this idea. I don't really like the term, but uh, people talk about, you know, vaccine passports or, uh, more specifically, you know, should businesses be able to have requirements about uh, employees or customers, uh, you know, uh, being vaccinated uh, or, or not? This is something that I think you've seen, uh, you know, some places or some people have kind of pushed that. Uh, other states have said, no, no, you can't do that. It, it reminds me a little bit about uh, of the mass thing where, you know, versus like, well, you businesses have to require masks and then later businesses can't require masks, whatever. Um, right. You know, so this is something like, obviously some people really react negative, negatively to this. Other people say, well, you know, it's like, it's, it's a private company, man. Um, so I don't know, like how, how do you think about 
uh, these sorts of things, you know, what, like what would. Yeah. I, I think for the most part, um, there was, there was some big talk about the whole vaccine passport thing a few months ago. Um, and I don't hear much about it anymore. And, you know, as I mentioned, even Michigan seems to be opening up pretty fully, uh, in a few weeks now, most cases, no one's going to be able to track who is vaccinated and who isn't, um, unless they literally are, you know, the pharmacist or doctor that has somebody's record. Um, and it's got to just, it's going to be an honor system. Uh, within that, I'm fine with saying, you know, as a matter of economic freedom, businesses should be able to say, hey, we don't, we don't want anybody coming in without a mask unless they can prove they were vaccinated. And then let's just let the market, you know, determine whether people want businesses to do that. There might be a niche market uh, for that kind of a business. I think in most cases that won't be very successful. Um, my thoughts about vaccination in terms of public health and being cautious in general are that our goal here is not smallpox, you know, complete eradication, as, as wonderful as that would be, but it's more like the flu. Um, if we can get our mortality rates down to the flu, well, we every year live our lives just fine. About half of us maybe get vaccinated against it. Um, and people still die of it, and it's still tragic when they do. And I wouldn't in any way want to make light of that. But it's not the sort of thing that leads to lockdowns and other sorts of restrictions or anything like that. I think that's probably where most people are at. I think that's, you know, most realistic in, in, in that sense, best case scenario, what we should expect. All right. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me.